When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Preparations for a rising in Ireland in 1916 by the Military Council of the IRB were based on the assumption that any such rising would be nationwide to the greatest extent possible. However, as far as the Military Council's plans for Ulster were concerned, they do not seem to have been in any way detailed, or to have been argued and discussed in any really serious way with the men who would have to execute them in the North. The result was that when the time came for action, there was much argument and debate which should have taken place earlier, much indecision, doubt and confusion. It was, of course, essential that the date and plans for a rising once decided on should be kept the secret of a few. Still, a number of people, and indeed some who were not in the highest councils of the IRB, got very clear hints of what was coming. In fact, Cahal O'Shannon of Belfast, through his associations with Connolly, got something more than a hint. In February 1916, he tells us... Shortly after Connolly's alleged kidnapping, he wasn't kidnapped at all, of course, at all. But after that, shortly after that, I asked Connolly, uh, any news of anything doing or anything like that? Uh, well, to so see, uh, the date is fixed, uh, definitely fixed. Not as early as I'd have liked, uh, but it's fixed definitely and it will do. He couldn't, he told me, tell me when it was because that wasn't to be disclosed uh, as uh, five others and himself were on the road not to disclose it until the time came for insurrection. Uh, I guessed that three of the others would be Pierce, Clark and McDermott. I didn't know, obviously, I think the other two must have been Plunkett and Kent. But uh, that, I think, uh, was the nearest uh, we could get now, sometime after that, not very long, I think, in the next month, uh, March, the beginning of March, Pierce came up to Belfast to deliver uh, in St Mary's Hall for the volunteers uh, the annual uh, Emmett commemoration uh, lecture. Uh, after his lecture, he came along to me and said that uh, I was asked by McDermott or some of them in Dublin uh, to go to Balnea and do the lecture there because... Hearn, Archie Hearn, the volunteer organiser, had been deported or ordered out of uh, Cavan and Balnea. I came on to uh, Dublin uh, from Balnea, uh, called on Connolly, uh, told Connolly something that uh, Hobson was supposed to have said to uh, Joe, uh, the late Joe Connolly. Uh, Connolly asked me to go up uh, to Clark and tell Clark that. I went up to Clark and Clark was... Well, he was very peeved over the whole thing. But however, that wasn't the really important thing. I think the really important thing was he, Clark asked me if Connolly had given me anything. I said, no, he hadn't. Well, so he go back to him now uh, and ask him for that. And he emphasized the word that uh, and take it back with you to 
uh, McCullough in Belfast. I went back to Connolly. Connolly told him uh, Clark's message. Uh, Connolly produced a paper in his own very crabbed uh, handwriting and uh, dictated or read it out to me, although I could have read it uh, myself. And an outline briefly, uh, it was uh, uh, plans for the mobilisation uh, of the companies of the volunteers in the north uh, for insurrection. No date or anything like that, or no orders or anything like that, but just assembly points and one thing or another like that. When Connolly gave me this, I made some comment uh, about it, and to some comment of mine uh, about the bigness of the task that uh, the papers seemed to set out for the Ulster uh, companies, uh, I rather was sceptical about it. Connolly replied, and he said that he was assured that the forces in the north were sufficient for that job, whatever it was. He agreed uh, that, to his own knowledge, of course, uh, we were comparatively few in Belfast, and he expressed surprise uh, when I doubted if the volunteers in any other part of the north were as many or more than the 100 or 150 or so that we had in, in, in Belfast. The president of the IRB in the months before the rising was Dennis McCullough, and he was also officer commanding in Ulster. However, McCullough made no claim to being a military expert, nor, as the owner of a small piano-selling business in Belfast, had he the time to devote to organisational work. So he persuaded Tom Clark to appoint an organiser for the province. The man Clark selected was one Francis de Burke, Frank Burke, from Carrick Macross. But the work he did as organiser of the volunteers, or as coordinator of effort in the north, seems to have been singularly ineffective. Dennis McCullough tells of an important meeting with Burke, Pierce and Connolly in Dublin some time before the rising, at which plans were discussed. Pierce summoned me to Dublin and he brought Burke also up. And we met with Connolly, four of us met in the Keating branch of the Gaelic League. And Connolly took charge of the... Of, of, of the of, he was representing the, the military council, you know, the military committee, or military council, whatever you call it. Uh, and he gave me... Uh, told me that plans for Ulster were that we were... To, I was to take my men from Belfast. And I apparently was the only active unit and was to take my men from Belfast, join the Tyrone men in Tyrone and start off for Connaught and join Mellis and carry out whatever orders he had. Well, no, I, I, I'm supposed to be a sensible man and I usually am sensible and a realist. And if I got and looked at the map, I'd have told him that they were, they were dreaming. Then he followed this up by saying, I, I, I said, but I haven't enough arms to do that. That's a, a long trek, and I haven't enough arms to do that. I said, I'm, I'm organizing. My mother's house was a kind of a depot, and all the fellas coming from Glasgow at various times brought small parcels of jelly night and that kind of thing, and left it with her. And she gave it to a man called Madol, who was our quartermaster, and he under my instructions, was making little hand grenades. I don't know whether they were any good at it or not, but he made them anyhow, out of canisters with gelignite brought from Glasgow. Yes, I told him that I was uh, making, getting these hand grenades made, that I would have to have it, uh, propose to attack barracks on my, on, on, uh, uh, 
to try and get enough arms for our men. Now, they had very little arms. I hadn't more than 30 or 40 rifles of all kinds. And I wanted some more, and I wanted some ammunition. And he immediately, and in, and in a very determined way, said, you do nothing of the kind. Cromwell, you do nothing of the kind. But I said, what am I going to do? I must get, I must get my men armed if I'm going to take a job of that kind. Of. You'll fire no shot in Ulster, he said. And you'll, you'll fire no shot in Ulster, he said. You'll evacuate Ulster with all possible speed with any men you have and get to Connacht and join Malleus. That's a big undertaking, I said, and I'd need arms to do it. He said, you'll, you'll, st you'll stop nowhere and you'll fire no shot on Ulster. And I turned to Pierce, because I wasn't taking orders from Connolly, you know. I was an IRB man, essentially and absolutely. I said, is that an order, Commandant? It is, he said, and you'll obey it strictly. After that meeting, I had a discussion with, with Pierce. I said, has the day been, did been fixed yet? No, he said, but you will be warned of that. We'll send you word, he said. I'll send you a, a communication uh, telling that certain, uh, some event will happen on a, on a date, and you'll read that date a fortnight earlier, 14 days earlier, he said, and that will be the date of the rising. Mm. And uh, uh, <laughs> he said, I'll send you that in, 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 in good time. That's the last I heard from Pierce. I got no communication, good, bad, or indifferent. I got no communication from McDermott or Clark to tell me the rising was, was fixed for the day. My own view is that Sean McDermott personally knew the Ulster and didn't propose to be that we should go out because he had organized that part and he knew that we had as much chance as a snowball in hell of ever getting through to Connacht. Uh, and we couldn't do it anyhow without without uh, raising a sectarian row in the way. We very nearly did it in, 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 in the event. I heard no more word about it, but Alf Cotton, who was here the other morning, Alf Cotton, who was had been deported from, from Kerry and was living in Belfast, had orders from Pierce to report to me every day, and I'd give him word of the date when it was wanted. And Alf came in every day faithfully and had a pastor word, and I'd say, no word, and he'd, he'd go away, and that'd be the end of that. Until one Saturday morning, that's the holy Saturday morning, I think the week before Easter, he came in and he said, any word, Dennis? I said, no, no, I have no word, Alf. No. Because I have, he said. And what word have you got? See, I have orders to report. I have orders from Pierce to report in Kerry on Saturday, whatever the date was, on Saturday, and to bring my arms and my uniform. And uh, what do you think it means? It looks to me, I said, look, like action. What are you going to do? You going to do? I said, yeah, I have to find that out, said, I don't know yet. What'll I do? He said, pay your orders. Do what you're told, go down to Kerry. And he sent him, he enclosed 10 pounds uh, with him to pay his expenses. Uh, so that's the first I heard of it was from Alf Cotton. With Dennis McCullough on the Supreme Council of the IRB was another Ulster man, Dr. Patrick McCartan from Carrickmore in County Tyrone.
Like McCullough, he too had got orders from a member of the military council some time before the rising. He was told by Pierce to bring his men to Belcoo in County Fermanagh and to hold the line of the Shannon. At that stage, apparently, those orders were not questioned. In some recollections he recorded for the historian Father F.X. Martin, OSA, before his death, he said that at the last meeting of the Supreme Council, no date for a rising was fixed. When I heard about it on Holy Thursday, I came up to Dublin. I remember we called it uh, Father McPhillips. Well, and he didn't know that it was an armed rising was in my question, did he? He did. Yeah, and that's what I couldn't believe. You know. Yeah. I thought it would be another uh, post-gun running. Yeah. McCartan's reason for thinking that what was intended for Easter Sunday was another gun running was that just before this he had received from Joe McGarity in America a message for Tom Clark about the date of the arrival of the Odd from Germany. It was to meet the Odd, of course, that Alf Cotton had been ordered to carry from Belfast. And, as we have heard from Denny McCullough, that was the first hint he got that a rising was imminent. He immediately set out for Dublin and stayed, as he always did, with Tom Clark in Fairview. Sean McDiarmid came to the house while he was there, but fled when he saw him. On the night of Pam Sunday there was a concert in the Forester's Hall, which McCullough attended, and at which Bulmer Hobson made an unexpected speech. I found him making a speech, saying that this was not Ireland's war, that it was not our chance, we'd, we'd best keep the volunteers together and wait on the next opportunity. I thought that futile, having heard what I had heard, Incidentally, I asked Tom Clark, Tom, what is all this about and has there anything been fixed? And Tom Clark said to me, now this is absolutely true, Dennis, I declare to God, I know nothing about it. Hmm. All I know is that I've been, my orders to mobilise with Ned Daly and bring whatever arms I have and I have it here. And he produced a big Mexican, or Texan, not Mexican, a Texan, revolver, which was nearly as, as big as himself. <laughs> I was like a small cannon. And said, I'm taking this with me and turning out. Uh, when, I, when I went in Hampton, then, of course, it upset me terribly because I'd have to been... I, I'd been gathering from various things that the rising was taking place in a week or so, and here was a man of Hobson's calibre uh, talking about not our, 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 our opportunity at all. And I thought with divided constantly we were in a pretty, pretty bad shape. I went out into the hall again and I met Sean McDermott come stumping up. And I said, same as O'Callaghan did, I said, Sean, you better go in and hear what Bulmer's saying. Mm. And he stumped in and I went after him and I met him coming out again. He said, well, Damn soon settled that fellow's uh, 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 hash. And they arrested him that night or the, or the following day, I think. They arrested Hobson and, and kept, him, kept him under surveillance in Martin Conlon's house. Uh, well, didn't McDermott tell you personally about the rising then? No. On another not, occasion? Not nice. Nothing happened. We parted again. I said, Sean, you haven't talked to me yet. I can't do, I have too much to do, he said. To, well, I'll see you in the morning, I said. And the following morning, I went down to his office in Delaire Street. And he kept me sitting there. The place was like a war office. 
fellas arriving on motor a motor bicycles and up to the up to the neck in mud. It was a very bad day and uh, riding away again and new men coming and new fast riders coming in. So eventually, I sat for quite a while in the outer office and eventually he says, every time he opened the doors, I'll see you in a, a little while then. And after about half an hour of it, I waited for the next man come out and I went to the door and I turned the door, went in and locked the key, turned the key and said, now Sean, you'll see me now, I said. And uh, he, he laughed, he said, all right, all right. What is all this activity about? I said, uh, and I haven't been informed. So he said, oh, no, you've got to tell me now. There's no more talk about it. I want to, t I want to know before I leave this room. So he told me what I consider a cock and bull story, too, that there was a ship would come into Dublin. There was a ship bringing arms to the south, and the country was turning out on the Sunday. So he, he told me all this, and he said, what do you think of it? Well, Sean, if you ask me, I think it's more than suicide. And what, what will you do? I'll do what I should do. I'll, I'll turn and take me, take me chance of the rest. But I don't like it. I don't approve of it. Sean McDiarmid's experience with McCullough on that occasion may have made him a bit more ready to talk to other volunteer leaders from the north later in the week. At any rate, when Joseph O'Doherty, a young volunteer officer from Derry City, called on him quite casually on Spy Wednesday, he was almost immediately taken into his confidence. Then he asked me if I had heard anything, and I said, uh, uh, no, I hadn't heard anything. Uh, had I heard anything of importance? And I said, uh, no, I hadn't heard anything. That, well, uh, he said, is there any other reason why you're in town? And I said, no, that was the only reason. How long did I intend to stay? And I said that I intended to stay over until after Easter Monday. He then asked me uh, if the, the stuff had been delivered, had been distributed. The stuff that he referred to was a consignment of small arms and ammunition that had come into my possession on the basis of a delivery note that was sent to me by Dr. McCartan from, Athlo from Tyrone. Uh, this stuff was about half a tonne of stuff. Uh, I had kept under my own supervision and in safety, and it was in my possession at the time. So, uh, McDermott, Sean then said to me, they'll that stuff will have to be distributed. I was in a room alone with him in the inner room. There were two rooms in the, in the, in the flat, on the flat where the Irish Freedom was produced, and I was in the inner room with him alone. And he said that he had some very important information to give to me. And he gave me again the oath of allegiance, the IRB oath, uh, and... Uh, First of strict, strictest possible secrecy. Having taken the oath again, he then told me that they were striking on Sunday night at six o'clock, and both of us shook hands. And I said that I was very uh, lucky being in Dublin because I was always 
afraid that communications with Derry would break down and that we would be left out of the fight. Well, he said, I'm afraid, he said, you won't be in Dublin on Sunday night because each man is required in his own area. I beseeched him and he said, I beseeched him for permission to stay and he said, no, you will have to get back apart altogether from the work that you will have to do. This stuff must be distributed. I want you to take your brother Seamus with you and go back tonight. That was Holy Thursday night. Go back tonight to Derry and get in touch with Dr. McCartan and tell him that you have instructions from me, that is, Sean McDermott, to distribute this stuff and give Dr. McCartan the opportunity of taking from it whatever his requirements, whatever his, his requirements needed, and to distribute the rest uh, by sending back with Seamus as much as he could carry and keeping the rest for Derry. On Good Friday morning, Joe Doherty set out for Gorton in Tyrone, where Dr. McCartan had his dispensary. He didn't find McCartan, so he returned to Derry to await further instructions, which, in fact, never came. Dr. McCartan at that time was probably on his way back from Dublin. Having gone there on Holy Thursday, immediately he heard of the proposed rising. Tom Clark he found in great form, talking about the expected arrival of 5,000 Germans. So that, as McCartan says, I left him for the first train next morning as enthusiastic as himself. That was on Good Friday. And it was that night or Saturday morning that Dinny McCullough arrived in Carrickmore to discuss the situation with McCartan. Preparations were still going ahead for mobilisation on Sunday. And during the week, Seamus Tammany of Coal Island and Hugh Rogers of Six Mile Cross had driven up to Belfast to collect arms. When we arrived in Belfast, <coughs> it would be around 12 o'clock at night, and along with Peter Bono and charge of men there at Madis. And they took us to somewhere, I don't just remember, around or opposite the Tonard Monastery, and they were loaded there. Well, who was with you on this expedition to Belfast, Seamus? Well, the carrot I was in was driven by a Q. Rogers, six mile cross, and the other car was driven by a Thomas McGuigan from Dungan and he was accompanied by William John Kelly, senior. That was accompanied to Tom Clark's. Well, how did you get on along the way? No accidents or anything? Oh, we had one. I got a flat tyre in Lisbon. Not a very good place, I'd say. Uh, not a good place load. at all. Terribly bad at that time. Well, did you manage to get it repaired? Oh, anyhow? there was. There was a friend of ours there that I knew earlier. at a chemist shop just in the cross. I just remember his name just at the moment what we called there, and he got us fixed up and started on the road again for Pody Down and Tyrone. Well, where did you put the arms when they did arrive? Oh, we arrived with the arms safe and well, and dry trust for the Muslim, and another place to call Cor, near Colailan. These arms sent to Tyrone, what were they like? Dennis McCullough. We had no money, no volunteer funds at all, and... We had very little arms. The total arms we had, which we brought to Tyrone, was in the nature of 42 mixed rifles. Snyder's, Martini, Anfield, Martini, Martini, other ones. Uh, old Snyder's and new Snyder's. Some of the old Snyder's would have killed a man with a kick, a kick without, without being mm. at the other end of them at all. Uh, we had 42 of those and about 10 rounds apiece. 
And I, I, I got my section commanders together and I mobilized them, told them that they were going for maneuvers on Sunday and it may turn out to something more serious and to go to confession and make their preparations and ready. And I drew enough money from, the, from my own account to buy them tickets. I'd give it to Archie Hearn and one or two of the other section commanders to bring their men down to Tyrone. I sent word to Tyrone that the men were coming and to get them someplace to stay. They were to bring two days' rations each. And that was, the, as far as I knew, they went off then, and I, I went off and made my own preparations. The Belfast Volunteers and Fianna Boys were in training in huts at Willowbank in the Falls Road area. Cahill O'Shannon was among the volunteers. On Good Friday, he says, they were called to the huts and numbered off for mobilisation on Sunday. We were to travel by three trains uh, and three lots from Belfast. Uh, about uh, two o'clock was one of them and one about between three and four and one between... Uh, uh, nine, uh, ten, nine, nine and ten. I think it was, as a matter of fact, uh, nearer ten uh, for Saturday. That's for Saturday night. Now I was to travel on the three o'clock or three forty or three fifty ten or whatever it was on the Saturday. My contention. But unfortunately, when I got home to lunch, I found that there was a conscientious objector there had been carted over to me from Scotland, and I was asked to look after him. I had a good man in that. Well, it was I was going to go to war, and there I was giving shelter to a man who was dead against war, and a Scotsman at that. But anyhow, I had to spend several hours, couldn't get away on the train that I should have gone, and didn't get until the 9.50 or whatever it was at night. And then that was to to Coal Island. We understood that we would be joining Coal Island on the Sunday uh, by uh, Tyrone contentions, but we didn't know a great deal uh, about that. The number of Belfast men who arrived in Coal Island on either Saturday or Sunday was, according to Dennis McCullough, 132. Dr McCartan has claimed that there were 500 volunteers under his own command in Tyrone, but only a very few of those assembled in Coal Island on Easter Sunday. The reason was that the volunteer leaders had decided by then that the plan to march to Connaught was not acceptable. Eckert who had a small garage. He arrived in this car. He said he'd come down from, from Tyrone and Dr. McCartan wanted to come to his place. So I started off with him and I arrived in Tyrone in Dr. McCartan's house to find that the two priests, Father, Father Daly and Father Coyle and this man, Burke. Prince E.D. Burke. And they started that immediately then, that, that they, this was not our race, this was a Connolly race, and they could just take no part in it. Nothing I could do would convince them it was an IRB rising. This argument of the two Tyrone priests about a Connolly or socialist rising would seem to have been merely a rationalisation on their part of their objections to the plan their men were asked to carry out. Dr McCartan, at any rate, knew whose rising it was. And as both Father Daly and Father Coyle were unsworn members of the IRB, accepted by Tom Clark himself, it's hard to believe that they didn't know also. Their real concern was that the Tyrone men were being ordered miles outside their own territory on what they regarded as a completely unpractical adventure. 
McCullough, in the event, agreed with them. They wouldn't listen to it. They were quite right. They wouldn't listen to it. I shouldn't have listened to it in the first instance. I was to blame. <laughs> I was to blame because I shouldn't have listened to it in the first place. But Connolly was a dominating sort of fellow, you know. He gave us an order. Give us this order. And I said to Pierce, is this an order? It is, you know, the best strictly. Couldn't, yet, when I look at it now, one's only got to look at the map to see the futility and the foolishness and the absurdity of it. Yes. You just couldn't have got across Tyrone, Fermanagh, Leitrim, or wherever you were intended had, to go. We'd had to go, we, we'd had to make first, for instance, cross into Connacht there and wo- walk or fight or ride. Some, someone said you could go on donkey carts, some of the Tyrone fellows. Shows the kind of mentality. That was years afterwards, of course. None of them were going in, in any kind of carriage than when I was there. Well, that's Dennis McCullough's recollection of arguments and attitudes at those momentous discussions at Easter in Tyrone. In justice, however, to the men of Tyrone in general, it must be stated that most of them were ready and willing to carry out any orders they got. Many from East Tyrone in particular mobilised in Coal Island on Easter Sunday. Bernard Conlon of Ben Barb was one of them. With about a dozen men on bicycles, he moved off early that morning from the Glebe, five miles from Dungannon. Two policemen, the sergeant and the senior constable, was waiting for us, both on bicycles, and accompanied us to Coal Island. How did they know you were going on? Why were Uh, they waiting, did you think? I was a bit suspicious that perhaps there was an informer somewhere or other that they could be prepared to be with us and be on bicycles as well. So they followed you all the way to Coal Island? All the way to Coal Island and left us home again. I see. Well, in Coal Island itself, you paraded, did you? No, we didn't parade. We were uh, manoeuvred into uh, somewhat of some kind of uh, military formation and told to keep our men together and not let them stray away, that we might be ready to move off at any time. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing but uh, rumour and speculation as to what was going to happen, but we knew there was something out of the ordinary, so we were all keyed up and didn't know what was going to happen till we got the countermanding order. To disband? To disband. In the consultations which went on prior to the dispersal of the volunteers, Cahal O'Shannon was called in by Denny McCullough. This is how Cahal recalls the discussions and those taking part. I got up and went to where McCullough was, and with McCullough was Dr. Pat McCartan, who was also a very prominent, uh, very prominent uh, IRB man, whom I knew very well. But anyhow, uh, I gathered from McCullough uh, that there was some question uh, had arisen whether or not uh, our men should remain uh, where they were in Tyrone or go back uh, or go back home. Uh, that was a bit of a, uh, a puzzle to me. Some of us had been disappointed that uh, we hadn't seen very many of the Tyrone men whom we expected. But anyhow, I was told something about a motor car arriving there sometime, whether it was that morning or not, I don't know. But... Uh, uh, as far as I can remember, and in these things, uh, they... You've got to they, depend on your own memory. Well, really, you should, give, you should uh, give no more than one's clear memory. It was put to me by McCullough that men in a position to judge 
I gather that the men in the position to judge he was referring to were a Father Coyle, uh, Father Coyle and a Father Daly, that they had come to the conclusion that the Belfast men should return home, that for all practical purposes, the only body in arms, or likely to be uh, in arms uh, in the north, was the Belfast contingent, uh, and that if they uh, remained uh, there, they were likely to be the object of attack. Uh, it was uh, suggested that uh, uh, Father Doyle, Father Coyle and Father Daly had said uh, that they would not allow the Tyrone volunteers to go outside their own county. And the plans were that the whole contingents were to go out, I understood, uh, away to, in the direction of Connacht. But at all events, uh, that was the position then, uh, and uh, I was asked, what did I think of it? Well, I objected immediately to the whole idea of returning home, and without getting a definite, uh, getting it definitely in so many words, I gathered quite clearly and definitely that whatever was on for that day was now off. Pimmet, a yard or two distance, uh, confined himself to scornful expressions, and my attitude is foolish. Well, that finished the uh, consultation as far as I was concerned, and the curtain was there, and he seemed very undecided. But to do him just as he said, that whatever, sometimes he seemed to be for his remaining, sometimes for his going, uh, but to do him justice, he said that whatever was decided on, uh, he would uh, fall in with it, and uh, he would take, yes, mm. and he would take whatever consequences were coming. The decision to disband came shortly afterwards. The Belfast men marched off towards Stewartstown to get the northern counties trained from Cookstown home. On the march, a hot-headed young volunteer, impatient at the attentions of detectives and RIC men, fired the only shot heard in Ulster that day. About Cookstown, or the borders of Cookstown, a shot was fired by one of our men uh, in the bank, uh, bank ranks, uh, and two of our men were arrested, a man named John Dillon and another named Jerry Horley. Jerry was a very good fellow, as a matter of fact, he was an officer in the IRA in the Black and Tan War and was killed, I don't know whether it was at Clonmult, but in one of the fights in County Cork. A very good fellow indeed. Well, anyhow, we were arrived in Belfast and we dispersed there, and some of us went to the Gaelic League rooms, the Crave Rua, uh, where we often assembled at night, discussing what the devil uh, had happened and all that, but not known very much, uh, not known very much about it. When in came Albert Cotton, Albert Cotton was a volunteer, a Belfast man, a Protestant, had been organiser for the volunteers in Kerry, but had been ordered out of it and was in Belfast. And he brought in uh, the news about McNeil's counter-order from the Sunday Independent. That certainly was the first time that I heard, or most of us heard, anything about the counter-order. We heard nothing about it in uh, the camp at Coal Island or anything like that. And it didn't appear then that our orders were in... Uh, our, departure from Coal Island was in response uh, to that counter-order. In Tyrone, MacNeil's order had the effect merely of confirming a decision already made locally. On the Saturday night, Nora Connolly, James Connolly's daughter, had set out from Tyrone to report on the position to her father in Dublin. The fact that about 200 men had assembled or were then assembling around Coal Island made a deep impression on him and it had a big influence on the decision of himself and the other members of the military council to go ahead with the rising in Dublin on Monday, despite the setback of MacNeil's countermanding order. Nora Connolly was sent off to the north again to help retrieve the situation there. 
It was early on Easter Monday morning that I left Liberty Hall with five other girls from the north to return to Cool Island with dispatches and messages from Pierce and my father. It was hoped that we would reach there before the volunteers were dispersed in answer to McNeil's instructions. When I reached Coal Island, it was to find all the volunteers demobilized, the Belfast contingent sent back to Belfast, and the other contingents scattered across Ulster. I was lucky to find the local volunteer officer. I told him that there were now fighting in Dublin, that an Irish Republic had been proclaimed, that we had seen the proclamation, and that we had Pierce, dispatches from Pierce for the officers commanding. I sent one of the girls back to Belfast to the OC there and told her to get in touch with as many volunteers as she could to tell them what was happening in Dublin and why she had come back. I sent Diana with the others to the OC Tyrone. The local officer immediately mobilised his men. I know he kept them under arms for a day and a night waiting for the orders he expected to come back for them. I have a very vivid memory of being taken after dark to a large barn-like building and seeing the volunteers there sitting and standing about and rifles and haversacks stacked against the wall. I know they stayed there waiting for orders till their officer, fearing their absence would cause comment and arouse suspicion and perhaps imperil his orders when they came, disbanded them and told them he would have the chapel bell rung as soon as he received orders. But no orders came. And no word came back from the two dispatch carriers. On Wednesday I gave up hope. I sent the other girls home, decided to collect my sister Ina and make her way to Dublin. At Carrickmore I learned that Ina had arrived there and had gone on to Clogher. I saw the O.C. there too, and begged and pleaded and abused them, but to no avail. The men were scattered and they couldn't be brought together again. So I decided to go on to Clogher, which I was given to understand was only a few miles away. First thing in the morning I started off to walk there. It was late afternoon and I was still trudging along, feeling very exhausted and terribly thirsty when in the distance I saw two girls cycling towards me. When they came nearer, I recognised Ina and Teasy Walsh. They were going to Carrickmore for news, but turned back with me. Nora Connolly was not the only one now trying to reach Dublin from the north. Some of the Ulster men, realising that the fight was on in the capital, made a valiant effort to take part in it. Cahill O'Shannon was one who did in fact reach Dublin in the end. Others, like Seamus Tamney and William John Kelly of Dungannon, cycled as far as Portadown, but could get no further. On Easter Tuesday, following Nora Connolly's return, there was a further effort at mobilisation around Dungannon, Donoughmore and Carrickmore. Willie John Kelly told us about it. Yes, the Dungannon and Donoughmore men were instructed to mobilise at Carrickmore on Easter Tuesday night and there were some other men to meet them from Carrickmore. And I think Dr. McCartan was to be there with them, but when the Donoughmore and the Dungannon men arrived, there was no one there to meet them, only two RIC men. 
<laughs> well, they didn't... Uh, no, they didn't, they, they didn't interfere with them. But they, uh, they waited for a while and they just had to return home to Dungannon. Mm-hmm. Well, then on the, the Thursday of Easter week, a daughter of James Connolly's arrived in Tyrone and wanted to know what was wrong that they didn't make a move on Tuesday night. So a brother of mine, Thomas and uh, Tommy McGuigan, went to Carrick Moor with her to interview Dr. McCartan. But when they got there, Dr. McCartan couldn't be found. By that time, of course, any kind of military action in Tyrone or elsewhere in the north was doomed to failure. Both the military and RIC were active, and raids and arrests were the order now. Dr. McCartan was on the run. There was no hope of the Belfast men reassembling either, and the general feeling was that the plan for the North was unrealistic, even if it had been tried out in the first instance. The only consolation for frustrated volunteers was that other parts of the country more favourable for action had been no less confused, and that even if something more decisive had been done in Ulster, it would have made not the least bit of difference to the outcome of the rising as a whole.